Hello and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Today we talk about Europe. In the coming weeks, Germany may cancel its nearly built Baltic pipeline project with Russia as retaliation for Russia's poisoning of its opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Even if they don't cancel it, the debate over the pipeline seems an unusually muscular reaction for a continent that in the past decade or so has been seen as weak and indecisive. What's going on, Muni? Something definitely is happening, Peter. Europe was once a geopolitical powerhouse. The EU over the recent decades, however, seems to have lost its strength in the international political conversation. Today, we'll talk about why we think that's changing, and we'll discuss current flashpoints and their repercussions for Europe's place in the world. Of course, the constraints of an institution that needs to coexist between China, Russia, and the U.S. at a really complicated time, and the business and politics that are behind what we believe is the continent's resurgence as a global force. So let's just set the stage to make sure that we're all on the same playing field. So Europe is the world's largest economy, 450 million people, powerful armies. But, you know, in the last decade or so, we've only heard about woes like downer, 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 Brexit, economic distress, tensions on migration, extremist parties taking over. The EU seat at the international table hasn't been empty, but it seems so much smaller and quieter than it has been in the past. And it seems like Europe has deliberately shied away from the international state, instead focused on domestic crises and protests, fractured parties, rebuilding the EU governing structures and coming up from this deep recession of 2008. That might be changing, Peter, the era of this quiet Europe. It's definitely coming to an end. They've come out strong after COVID's devastating path across the continent and kind of emboldened. The EU managed to pass a 750 billion euro recovery package that showed another face of Europe, an institutionally stronger, less austere continent. So they have this new bravado and it's taken, they started taking the lead on collective security, trade, how to deal with Russia and the very complicated relationship between the U.S. and China. And politicians around the world are starting to acknowledge that Europe's newfound voice rings even louder in the absence of U.S. leadership. Yeah, I was sort of smiling when you said complicated relationship between the U.S. and China. Understatement. It's it's the understatement. But it's also created this complicated relationship between the U.S. and Europe because, as you said, there's an absence of, of U.S. leadership in Europe's bolder and more independent position today. It's thanks to that sort of clearly open space for it to do more. And thanks also to the behind the scenes toiling that two people really have done to create a sort of stronger, better Europe, which is Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, who've really done the yeoman's job of creating this sort of stronger, stronger continent. So stepping back to the headlines, all eyes did turn to Berlin after Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was poisoned, allegedly by Putin's secret police. So Germany stepped in, remember the images, sent a plane to Moscow to fly him out for treatment, planted the plane there until they released the patient. Now pressure is mounting for Germany to take a stronger position by refusing to go forward with Nord Stream 2, what you mentioned, a joint pipeline project with uh, Russia's Gazprom as a partner in which over 100 large European firms are involved. Merkel has not stopped the project. She's emphasized the economic fallout it would mean for European companies. She had some harsh words for Russia in the past few weeks, and the pipeline is expected to double the natural gas supply to Germany and the rest of the EU. 
There are very strong and vocal opponents, including the Trump administration, who claim it will increase Russia's energy influence on Europe. So Germany is under pressure to force the Putin regime to investigate the poisoning, but has decided for now not to pull the plug on the pipeline. It was interesting. I read in the New York Times the other day, Mooney, that you know Europe at this point, because of the sort of lower economic output, it really doesn't need the gas at all. But it does seem like the gas pipeline is is not on the chopping block. And on the trade side, while China and the U.S. have been sort of duking it out, the EU was busy signing an agreement with Beijing at a recent EU-Chinese summit. Europe firmly laid out its expectations for free and fair trade as China's top trading partner and its demanding reforms and lower barriers to access. Merkel even chastised China for violating trade rules and environmental standards. Europe walked away from the summit with a far, far stronger hand and signed an agreement and a signed agreement under its arm. So again, another proof that sort of there's the sense of a sort of resurgent Europe. Yeah, and people are starting to notice uh, it, what had started as a quiet and is now not so quiet voice that's also made inroads into the global arena. The EU, under the leadership of Ursula von der Leyen, has also changed its tone, even coming under fire for kind of overstepping and speaking openly of taking a larger role in the world stage. Let's talk with a German expert to look at the present and future of the EU and what's happening today in Germany. We're joined by Dr. Daniela Schwarzer, Director of the German Council on Foreign Affairs. Previously, she was Senior Director of Research for the German Marshall Fund of the United States, as well as heading its Berlin office and Europe program, and led the European Integration Group at the German Institute for International Security Affairs. Before that, she worked as an opinion page editor and France correspondent for the Financial Times Deutschland. Dr. Schwarzer, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Muni, for having me. Muni and I have been debating and discussing Europe, and there seems to be a recent resurgent voice of Europe. Do you agree with that assessment? I very much agree. Europe is more vocal, um, and that is because the world around Europe is changing so quickly, um, and Europe feels there is a gap to fill. Uh, mainly one left behind by the United States. And so there is a lot of discussion going on within the European Union and, of course, in the capitals of member states, how Europe can be a stronger player on the world scene. And so let me just follow that up. How can it be a stronger player and what, what has contributed to the evolution of this newfound geopolitical weight. I mean, Europe for the last decade has been a sort of a song of woes from Brexit to immigration to political tensions and things like that. And suddenly what we see is a newfound voice. So what's contributed to the creation of that and where does that voice go? Well, first of all, there are obvious external factors which have triggered uh, a stronger European role in international affairs. One is really the changing role of the United States and the mere fact that the current U.S. administration actively undermines multilateral structures in the world. And Europe was not only built as a, a multilateral European Union, but it's really uh, deeply rooted in international structures of order. Take, for instance, uh, the World Trade Organization and Europe's approach towards trade. And over the past years, uh, Europeans have, of course, observed how those structures have been challenged. So the natural question for Europeans is, of course, well, what can we then do 
to uh, maintain what we think are structures of global order that are beneficial to us, but that also provide stability and peace around the world. So this debate has really accelerated over, over the past years. Another external factor is, of course, China. There's now a very realistic discussion in Europe on what kind of actor China is. There are obviously very deep economic ties with China and a strong degree of interdependence. But on the other hand, there's systemic competition. So Europe needs to find a new balance vis-a-vis -vis China. And China and Russia today are seen as two um, countries that challenge Europe on many accounts, that intervene within the European Union, and that Europe really needs to uh, stand up against with a very clear position, be it on the one hand a constructive relationship. For instance, when we look at China, there needs to be a positive agenda with regards to handling climate change. There are mutual economic interests. But on the other hand, there are human rights issues. Uh, there are questions of international law. There's not a level playing field between the two. And so Europe understands it has to take a stronger position to make uh, the European voice heard in international affairs. One of the things that really has struck me in the last few months is one of the big changes is how for years, in particular, Germany has railed against any proposals in Europe that carried even the slightest whiff of a joint liability on debt issues. And now the Merkel government has embraced a relatively enormous debt-fueled recovery fund. And that seems to be like one of the most powerful messages. So what, what's changed? And is this a new era of German economic policy that's coming? Let me start by one thing that hasn't changed, and that is Germany's very strong interest to keep the EU27 together, both in terms of single market and then to hold those countries together who sh which share one currency, the euro. So here's Germany's constant worry over the past decade, um, ever since the financial then sovereign debt uh, and banking crisis that hit the eurozone, that something needs to be done to hold the currency union together because our economic model is really built with a strong orientation towards Europe. So the single market is a key market for us and Germany greatly benefits from the existence of the euro. That explains why years back Germany was ready, of course, under its own conditions, but still was ready to help out Greece and other countries through the European mechanisms that were built. Now, the fact that Germany has now agreed to a debt-funded uh, recovery fund tells you something about uh, the seriousness of the crisis and the worry, not only in Berlin, but clearly also in Brussels, Paris, and many other capitals around the European Union, that this crisis can actually, if not handled well, draw Europe apart. And this comes at a moment where global power competition is much fiercer than we were used to in previous years, where Europe as such is being challenged from the outside so this notion of holding Europe together has become even more important. And there's one important thing um, where the German position indeed has evolved, and then another one where it hasn't. One is Germany agreed that existing instruments, which have been there for decades basically within the EU treaties, can be used to issue uh, European guaranteed debt. Um, but this is only new debt, and here's the thing that hasn't changed. The German government doesn't agree to the mutualization of existing debt, because that's also a question within the Eurozone. Some countries have debt levels which go way beyond uh, 
100% of GDP. And, and there is a question here, what happens with that debt? And there the German position hasn't changed. This shouldn't be mutualized. I guess uh, the German government would rather look into a ways to restructure debt, um, but there's no willingness at this point to mutualize existing debt. I'd like to go back to um, the conversation about Germany and Russia and Germany and China quickly, starting with uh, you know what has been in the headlines recently, the, the whole Navalny tension. Germany is clearly taking a harder line position on Russia. And I'm, I guess the first question is, does this reflect a consensus in the region that Russia is a growing menace to Europe? And then second, talk a little bit about the poisoning of Navalny and what kind of pressure Germany is under. We've heard some hard words from Angela Merkel. And what would be the real pitfalls of moving forward without sending a clear message of protest? So if we can bundle all those into into kind of a general answer, that would be great. Well, ever since the annexation of Crimea, um, it is very hard to pretend that the previous policy on Russia, which consisted in really trying to build a, a partnership through economic ties and through cooperation that this actually worked because the annexation of Crimea from, from a European but also from a US perspective, of course, was a violation of international law. The you know, forceful uh, changing of borders is something that is seen as absolutely illegitimate, illegal, and also undermining the European security order. And so Germany has taken a pretty important role uh, alongside France in uh, the so-called Normandy format, um, which consisted in building a forum for, for a dialogue with Russia, Ukraine, um, Germany and France as European representatives to discuss how the violent conflict also in eastern Ukraine could be uh, reduced and how Russia could hopefully from a European perspective withdraw at some point. The other role that Germany constructively played, I think, is to help uh, create a European consensus on sanctions. Um, this was always, over the past years, a transatlantic consensus. This is very important to know because, of course, if you if you want to sanction and this is a transatlantic approach, this is far more uh, impressive. Now, with um, the Navalny case, you know, the interesting question is why why this attempted murder of an opposition politician while there have been other cases before. Um, and, and my understanding here is two things. One, this became a German and European issue because of the decision to bring Navalny to Germany and to have him treated here. This created a huge political and public attention to the case. Um, and on the other hand, additionally, there was really uh, this feeling of this is just the last straw that, that, that was needed to break the camel's back. It was just enough of uh, Russian uh, suppression of opposition, of, of murders or attempted murders. Um, then uh, the, uh, the situation in, in Ukraine, uh, the fear of a Russian support for the regime in Belarus and a possible violent crackdown on uh, the demonstrations that were going on at the same time. So, so suddenly, um, all this accumulated to a point where not only in Berlin, but in other capitals of Europe as well, there's a very serious debate ongoing, um, which is basically a review of the previous approach towards Russia and what can be done, uh, which leverage can be used to bring about at least a certain change in Russia's policy 
um, or at least to deter further activities like the ones I, I just mentioned. One thing is important to notice, with all the Europeanness in the debate, um, there is a strong caution on the European side not to make the conflict that is happening within Belarus a geopolitical one between Europe and Russia. Because the concern, of course, is if the Russian narrative, which is trying to build up this geopolitical narrative of European intervention and an attempt of Europeans to topple the regime in Belarus, if, if that was actually nurtured, the fear is then that Russia would, would basically um, hit back more forcefully. So it's a very, I would say, cautious discussion, but a very realistic one as to the question, what kind of actor are we facing here? And there are no illusions whatsoever now about, let's say, the real face of, of Vladimir Putin. Let's talk about another actor, which is China, that you mentioned before. The EU has also kind of strengthened its uh, hand on China, recently completed a trade agreement with Beijing, its largest trading partner. How much political leverage does the EU hold with China in the, the I mean, kind of the idea to have them make reforms, environmental and labor reforms, safeguard their workers and try to you know, move towards a more open trading system? Well, Europe has a huge market. And there's a very clear agenda with China, which uh, includes agreements which would make economic relations with China a, a more level playing field. Because there obviously is an issue with state companies in China, with huge state subsidies, with unequal market access, um, and other, other issues that, of course, are con of concern to, to European companies working um, in the Chinese market. So this is high on the agenda, but the negotiations are, are very difficult and, and um, probably they won't be completed in the course of this year as was initially hoped. From the European perspective, many of the issues in the uh, relationship with China are actually, when they are economic and in particular when they concern trade and investment agreements, they are in EU competence. Um, so the EU and the European Commission is facing Russia. But at the same time, Russia takes a uh, unilateral approach to a number of EU member states in order to have clear influence um, and to benefit from access to those countries. The most visible initiative here is the Belt and Road Initiative, where through the instrument of strategic investment, China gains access. And then there is obviously also a political attempt to divide Uh, the EU 27 by creating the 17 plus one initiative, which brings together basically those countries that are willing to work more closely with China, um, but leave the EU level out. So here's the internal challenge for the European Union. It needs to work on, on unifying the EU member states and make them adopt a, a, a joint position on China. And there was a big success uh, because there's the first, the first papers out, it came out in 2019, which was a kind of EU-China strategy, again, a pretty realistic one, which acknowledges that we are in a systemic conflict with China, but we are also economic partners. Now, a complicating matter is, of course, uh, the relationship uh, with the United States and the growing uh, competition between China and the US, where from a security and military uh, alliance perspective, but also from uh, the perspective of, of normative approaches and, and under systemic understanding as liberal Western powers, 
Europe is clearly on the side of the United States, but it has interdependencies with China. And that makes it so difficult if uh, the triangle develops in such a way that both partners, um, and from a European perspective, also China in some regards is a partner, starts to pressure Europeans. The policy area that is probably most complicated, and that's where Europe really needs to catch up, is technology. Um, because we have lost competitive edge vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and the United States. And with the whole process of digitization um, and the importance of future technologies uh, for the growth of our economies and the well-being of societies, uh, Europe has this catch-up to, to, to realize and needs to assess, uh, of course, uh, with the United States uh, where a future partnership can possibly lie. Because what we're sure about is really that Within this systemic competition, China will not accept Western norms with regards to uh, data protection. It will use data and the access to personal data also to expand its authoritarian grip on power. And this is, of course, something that Europeans are very worried about. And all this happens in the context of uh, perhaps the weakest point in the transatlantic alliance in, in several years, uh, mostly due to Trump's kind of foreign policy style. He's transactional, he's confrontational, he um, really likes kind of the bilateral foreign policy. And with everything you've mentioned, what are the consequences of this kind of weakened link across the Atlantic and how could that affect the new voice of Europe? Trump's approach to both the transatlantic relationship but also multilateralism has really pushed Europe forward. Um, so on the one hand, it's this worry that Europe has to do more to, to maintain or reform the structures and institutions of international order and has to be a stronger shaping actor in all of this. But on the other hand, there's of course also a worry that Europe has to bring more to the table. Um, the most uh, salient issue here is probably defense, where Donald Trump's criticism of Europeans not contributing enough to NATO, and in particular Germany not doing enough in terms of defense expenditure, this is really something that, uh, that Trump has been hammering in. Um, and uh, I would say Europeans have heard the message. However, it's very hard in, in domestic um, debates to actually say, Yes, we're doing this at a moment where there's this public blame game going on because those who are politically opposed would always say, well, you're just doing this because of Trump. But here the strategic narrative has, has changed considerably and still is about to change in Germany as well as in other EU countries. And one of the most tangible steps forward is really that uh, Europe has agreed on a more European and more structured approach to defense. Um, so officially, Defense cooperation was, was launched um, almost two years ago, and a number of projects were, uh, were put to work. This also has an industrial component, um, so it's very important to also think of European defense industry going forward. Uh, but it's also really the question of, and this is a COVID-19 issue, because in the economic downturn and the cuts in national budgets that will probably occur in the next few years to come, How can Europe uh, really provide the capabilities it will need, um, in particular also in, in the NATO context? And, and how can we um, make sure that through European cooperation, we are more efficient in, in, the own, in our own uh, building up of capabilities? Let me switch gears a little bit. I was born and raised in Italy, and Italian is my first language. And I wanted to talk a little bit. I mean, I think the way 
both Chancellor Merkel and President Macron have really been the leaders of this sort of resurgence that we're talking about is fascinating. But if you talk to many people in Italy or in Spain, there is a sense of being always left behind and being the second thought, whether it's on immigration issues or on economic issues. How does your fix that sort of split that has always, it's always been there, but it does seem to have gotten, have been exacerbated in the last years? Since the sovereign debt and banking crisis and the economic downturn that came uh, when the financial crisis spilled into Europe from the US in 2008, uh, this is a real worry because what we have seen then is that divergence uh, between EU countries, but also within societies, really accelerated. And so this is a real, a real worry now uh, for the cohesion uh, within the European Union, but also for the cohesion within countries and the political stability and, of course, the social stability. Now, I would say one element of, of response was really uh, the reaction to the economic downturn following the COVID-19 crisis, where Europeans realized that they have to do new things. One is the, the, the debt-funded recovery fund, but there's also, for the first time, an element of a European unemployment reinsurance scheme, which, which benefits the individual. And then there's a program uh, mostly running through the European Investment Bank to help European companies navigate through this crisis, and in particular to support small and medium-sized companies. Why is this so important? Because some of the EU countries have their own national banks that could deliver that service to the economy, but others don't. And Germany, France, Spain are among the lucky ones who have these institutions, these financial institutions, but others don't. And so this is really an important, an, an important step forward to realize that this crisis and this severe economic downturn needs more. But, but what needs to be tackled in, in future years really is to look more deeply into the question, how can Europe help societies in a deep transition it's the ecological transition because of the need to, um, to um, mitigate climate change. But then it's also the technological transition, which will have very deep uh, societal repercussions. And of course, you can argue this is a national issue and you have to handle this yourselves. But I believe that Europe is a, a single e economy which is deeply integrated and where the competitive pressure uh, through the market integration is, of course, strong. Um, and national instruments to some extent are limited, in particular in those countries where integration goes very far with a single currency. So what Europe really needs to look at is how we keep working on European economic instruments, not only to enhance the competitiveness of our economies, but also to make sure that uh, the social fabric is, is stable. Because if we don't ensure that, my belief is firmly that we will see political stability being undermined. If people are frustrated, they are more tempted to vote for parties that are nationalistic, um, populist, anti-internationalist, or whatever. There are many out there. Um, and so the big task really is for Europe to make sure, beyond the economic and financial piece, which is really important, to make sure that on a societal and political level, we do the necessary thing to keep open societies and democracy, democracies alive um, and ensure that the citizens really feel that this big integration project is in the end to their benefit as well. 
Dr. Schwarzer, one final question. What, in your view, is the right role for Europe in this post-COVID world, the geopolitical seat at the table? What, how do you see and, it? And what should we look for to see if Europe continues this new resurgence? Europe stands for a model, and that is a model of liberal, democratic states and open economies. This is what it has really built uh, in the group of 27 countries, And this is also what Europe represents in the world. Of course, all of those elements, which I just mentioned, are being challenged at the moment. So this is why I think leaders in the European Union have a double agenda. One is to consolidate and modernize internally and really make sure that societies are resilient and democracies are resilient going forward. And that is really the prerequisite for Europe to make sure that Internally, things are going sufficiently well so Europe can actually project itself internationally. Now, it is, of course, a strong economic actor because of a huge integrated and wealthy single market, um, but it has to be a more vocal international voice when it comes to the shaping of global order, but also when it comes to crisis management. So over the past uh, three, four years, the U.S. have actually... Uh, retreated from their previous global role. If you just look at the Middle East, there's a void that Europe didn't fill because it wasn't ready. So Russia, Turkey, others stepped in. Now, the challenge for Europe is this is our neighborhood and we have responsibility here with regards to our own security, but also with regards to the humanitarian catastrophes that are developing. If you take Yemen, for instance, or if you take um, migrants um, who, who arrive on European territory or who are stuck elsewhere. There's a huge agenda here, and Europe has to develop the tools and instruments to be a more active um, stabilizer and actor in its own neighborhood, but it also needs to bring its voice to the global level, and not only in the triangle with the U.S. and China, which we discussed already, but also talking to other actors that are hugely important in the world, like India, like Africa, and others. And here, more can be built, but the complexity, of course, is that on some of those issues, the EU doesn't have competence. So it has to rely on the member states' cross-sightedness and willingness to coordinate politically, in some cases to share roles, but to always be sure that we have a certain fundament. It's a normative fundament, and it's a historical legacy which we are carrying and which we can bring to the world because we are a successful integration and peace project. However, we need to be ready for the future and really design and shape structures of order going forward. Dr. Daniela Schwarzer, the director of the German Council on Foreign Affairs, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Moody, this is it was a fast it's a fascinating discussion but i got to tell you i just don't know if europe and the embedded problems that it has can keep up this really interesting new voice first of all you know the united states is going to come back secondly there is this huge fight with china which leaves europe in the middle thirdly you know right wing resurgence in europe has not stopped it continues to be a problem and then the last thing is that europe is really two europe's which is you know the actually it's even three it's the it's northern europe it's southern europe spain portugal and italy and greece and then it's eastern europe and these you know very quasi balkan states whether it's poland or bulgaria who are you know playing with 
huge democratic problem. So I'm encouraged by this, but I'm not sure it can last forever. Peter, I would agree with you in normal times, but these are COVID times and these are also times when the U.S. has stepped away from the table. And I believe that that gives even an embattled Europe facing all of the issues that you mentioned with a larger space in which to participate in the global conversation. So it looks like they're uh, getting their act together. It looks like they're enjoying this new and bold voice. A lot of other factors will have to play in, including the U.S. election. But for now, I think we have Europe, the voice of Europe back in the world stage. Thank you for joining us on All Tomorrow. See you next time. 